Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies. Sometimes we achieve outstanding pairings, and other times we give ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I'm one of your regular hosts. My name is Dave Gurney. I'm here with my other regular host, Joe Hilliard. We have a guy in the third chair who loyal listeners will know. Uh, he's been with us several times. It, Harold hit the five-timers club last time, right? I think so. And so now, just shooting above and beyond, uh, this is Harold Ramos, folks. Hurricane Harold. Hey, yeah, well, tropical storm, maybe. <laughs> Don't it's get coming. It. <laughs> this is we'll Harold's fourth time to host once we started doing rotating hosts. But he had been on prior, so I think this is his five-timers club inauguration today. Nice. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Welcome. It's always exciting, um, and I know Joe always talks of the beer, because uh, Harold's beer knowledge <clears throat> is as deep as any I know, um, plus the fact that he's a chef, he kind of understands flavor in a way that most people don't, so it's always fun to hear him talk about that. But the thing is, for me, what really seals the deal and actually makes the whole thing work is that the dude knows film yeah. and loves film and can tease things out of film that I'm just always impressed by. So thank you, Harold, for being here. My I'm pleasure. Thank you for having to, me uh, yeah. Love to be he, here. He does not like female Asian raunch comedy. <laughs> That's not. That's just on. one blind spot. One, no, yeah, he, Come he's on, seen man. it. Come he just on, doesn't man. like it. Well, yeah, Don't it, generalize me like that. <laughs> yeah, because the next one that comes, he's going to love. It's I, just, I, I bet you're right. You need the right mix. Well, he's. I know he's brave enough to go back into the fray. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But Harold always brings a nice beer. And there's a word on this can of beer, David, that I know has got your eyebrows way up <laughs> at the top of your head. Yeah, so so this beer is going to be here today in honor of our, our guest, esteemed guest here, a host, I'm sorry, I guess host, uh, David, who had a birthday just oh, recently. Yes, thank you. And uh, so in celebration of that, I'm bringing your favorite type of beer, which <sighs> is a Pilsner from one of our favorite breweries, uh, Jester King Brewery out of Dripping Strings, Texas, Yeah, outside of Austin, the Hill Country. So this is a just a basic German Pilsner. No information in the can about what kind of hops, but if it's a German Pilsner, I'm assuming it's going to be Nova Hops, you know. Saz. Saz, Halotto, you yeah. know, you kind of forest floor kind of hops. This is going to be probably crispy and clean. Uh, it just says German-style Pilsner on the can. So have you had this yet, Harold? I've had a couple, yeah. <laughs> you know, so Hormack has one But look at that. Just pours exactly yeah. like Crystal a Pilsner clear. should. So translucent. 4.6 ABV. L lovely golden yellow hue yes. i mean this is like Pale you know yellow. the the sort of uh visual ideal rendering yes. of beer when you just say. see b-e-e-r i want to see this image of, of a glass sitting with a liquid this color with a crystal head clear. just about yeah. that crystal clear bubbles rising beautiful to the top. tiny tiny bubbles yeah, it's tiny. this and is bubbles. the beer they should pour when they're shooting a photograph for a beer advertising. yeah and yeah. especially for jester king it's it's a little bit out of their out of their wheelhouse yeah they're always known for their their wild program and their wild fermentation but you know we, we talked earlier before we started the show about how they had to kind of pivot during covid and they kind of started doing different styles of beer that were a little more mainstream like hazy ipa right. i remember a quote from Jeffrey saying, we'll never make a hazy IPA. And then, <laughs> <laughs> you never say never, right? Yeah, you sure say enough, never, you're going to When you're closed, you can't sell beer. You got to pivot, right? Oh, it's so. interesting how those uh, things that feel like very, I mean, mm. it, it kind of happens with every yeah. movement, right? Like, I, I yeah. feel like punk, there was like ethos around yes. punk and not selling out. So, yeah. And then at a certain point, you kind of realize, you, eh, have to. It, you have to be malleable and change. Craft beer had to pivot at yeah. some point. And I, I'm glad they did, if only yeah. because. You need to do more than 
just a line of solid farmhouse ales. I think as sad as that is to say, I mean, there's very few breweries that can get away. I mean, are there yeah. any still standing that well, can truly uh, get away with that? New Brussels tried it, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think because they didn't have a choice because Folks. I believe he infected the entire brewery with, with his bread and everything else. So he had to make wild beers. He could Yikes. never make a clean beer again. <laughs> But yeah, uh, so so this is beer is made with a a clean strain of the yeast and probably some kind of lager yeast. I'm not sure what it uh, is. So. One of the things I love about beer in a movie is that David and I certainly, and then maybe a third person or always a third person, are going to be able to get into the room together once a week. And we always like these third guests. But how often do Joe, David, and Harold get in a room together twice in a week? Yeah. What happened earlier this week? We were at a, a birthday party for a friend of ours, <clears throat> and I want to talk all about that in After Hours. Okay, after okay. Hours, if you're not in it, is our uh, subscription-based uh, extra hour or so, extra 30, 45 minutes hour that you can find on patreon.com slash podcast. And I encourage you to go try it out just once. Just go, go spend that $5. And then you can listen to all of them. And if you don't like it, you don't have to stay. But right. I'm enjoying After Hours so much, and I think you will too. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I've heard some great conversations on there. Good times, good times. We are here to have a good time about a sad subject. That's let's true. let's just be upfront here. Um, we mentioned it, I believe, at least on After After Hours recently, that the passing, uh, the recent passing of director William Friedkin, mm -hmm. sort of shined a spotlight on his career. Um, we had tackled him once before. Just one time? On uh, an episode back, was that an all horror October one? It was. Yeah, where we did The Exorcist, um, sort of the film he's perhaps most renowned for, maybe alongside The French Connection, the film he made right before that. This That's episode 245. Thank you, Joe. Um, this is a uh, filmmaker who sort of loomed large in the 1970s, had, had a, you know, sort of falling off, but nonetheless, one who I think critically has gotten maybe as much reassessment of his films after the fact as anybody I can think of. Um, and I think for perhaps good reason, we wanted to find that out. So w when when we heard about Friedkin's passing, we of course reacted in the moment, but we felt like longer term, we needed to tackle a couple of his films yeah. at least uh, to kind of go a little bit deeper and really consider what was this guy doing that was maybe so notable when you thought okay prior to our assignments this week when you thought of friedkin and his one film that pops into your mind what was it for you for me it was the exorcist it really is a combo with the french connection right. the exorcist. Exactly. i think i, I think Those i actually sure. saw french connection first so in yes, some sir. ways that film kind of stands out in the okay. car chase i think in particular is just sure. an iconic yeah. kind of sequence that i always go when i think car chase it's like that and bullet those yeah. those are like the two films that come to my mind but the exorcist is right after there and and the exorcist gets the extra advantage of occupying this really important space in my entire sense of horror as a genre certainly it was yeah. so pivotal as a film and that was apparent to me even in the early i guess it was probably the late 80s early 90s when i saw it the French Connection would have been the easy go-to for this episode, but we we did we decided not to do that, and I would like to do that at a later time. But I I was eager to see some of these movies that had come up in conversation here on the show and in After Hours in the very recent past, probably because of his passing, that I have never seen before. Yeah, and so I'm very pleased with what we've come up with today. Well, 
We're taking uh, a couple of those films that I think have been most subject to that kind of critical reassessment uh, in, in later years, and we're going to take them on and we're going to consider them ourselves. Um, I think for Joe, this is going to be first time watching. For both. For both. I've not seen either of these films prior to this week. Right. Same here. I've never seen them either. Okay. And mine, these were rewatches, <clears throat> but it had been a while, at least on the second film. Now, the first film we're going to talk about today, I had actually seen somewhat recently. I can't even remember what prompted it, although it it might have been watching the film Wages of Fear, okay. which was made by the French director H. Clouseau, who had adapted, it was originally a novel, a story about four men who are contracted to uh, transport some very volatile chemicals, in this case, uh, with nitroglycerin. TNT. Uh, TNT dynamite right. fueled by nitroglycerin. Um, and doing so through treacherous terrain, using these trucks that really aren't well equipped for that. To try to, well, it needed to get to a location. What it's going to do, it's going to stop this sort of um, oil, well. oil well that's on fire. They're right. going to be able to kind of counteract it. In, and so this film about four men who sort of are put on this fool's mission um, that's almost certain to fail, um, going down the road to potential ruin, uh, Friedkin decided to take on himself. And in part, from what I understand, um, at least what he said, because Wages of Fear hadn't really been seen in the States. It was a popular film in Europe, well regarded there, but really was pretty much unknown here. And he just loved that basic concept of putting these four kind of disparate characters together, forcing them to work as a team, even though they all have these real flaws. <laughs> I mean, some are some deep flaws um, that, that are sort of potentially dynamite themselves in, in a sense i wrote down a note four men walk into a bar in Colombia. <laughs> yes right and so this adaptation he he took great liberties i mean it's not any it's not based more closely on the novel in fact i believe he went further afield than wages of fear ever did um sets it in Colombia. has these four figures from we get these this sort of epilogue right. uh, I'm four different vignettes a, a prologue yeah. I, I, i'm sorry uh which yes we could describe as vignettes that are these short renderings of what drove these characters to be fleeing and seeking anonymity in a place like Columbia, right? Um, just kind of hiding out in the jungle, to say. See, now I know why you brought me here today. Huh? I'm here because I'm Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't even think about that until I was watching it, and then I was like, "Oh man, that's but so, it's not Colombia. That's but, serendipitous." Yeah, it's okay. it, it's, yeah uh, they shot know, in the Dominican Republic, in Mexico, right? Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So, so you see a short little episode of a Mexican assassin killing somebody in yes. Mexico. Yeah. And then it cuts to uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Now we're in. Uh, we got a pal Palestinian bomber who who set right. the, who and he and his team set off a, a bomb, and he's the only one that survives, so he's on the run. Then you've got a French banker who's brought into a meeting and we're going to pursue you for fraud unless you can return mm -hmm. the money that you stole. And he can't. So he flees France. Mm -hmm. And then an American kind of mid-level gangster, maybe straight, Very, uh, Irish gangster, I, yeah. Right? Yeah, straight out of the Godfather, kind of like yeah. they're going to go do a quick church heist, but it goes awry and he's got to get out of town because he and his team accidentally killed a big gangster's brother. Right. And so now it's like, where do you go? Well, it turns out you go to Porvinet, Colombia. <laughs> uh, so they do all meet there and yeah. are enlisted for, as you called it, what you call it, a fool's errand, a fool's job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, it's doomed, right? I mean, and uh, so, yes, you get those, the prologue where we get this kind of setup, like what would drive these men to just be in this seemingly um, tucked away place that 
one might disappear to to try not to be found. But then once they're there, um, we set in motion that there is this fire. The petroleum company that's overseeing it needs it to be fixed. They know that this is a terribly treacherous thing to do. They just say, well, we're going to be able to pull drivers because, you know, there's just plenty of people who are it's looking the, to make the money a money involved, yeah. too, the amount of money they offer. Exactly. <clears throat> Which isn't even all that much, but is enough to make it worth the while of many people because there's a trial period, right? There's a fun montage sequence where we get – I'm making it sound like it's bubbly. It's not bubbly. <laughs> but, but where we see these yeah. different guys trying, trying the driving yeah. and, you know, these four are selected. And, and then we chart their journey um, as they're trying to make it back from this <laughs> – you know, destination 200 miles away to be able to get back to uh, Port Veneer so that they can, you know, fix this problem. What's fascinating to me most of all is probably the reason why I haven't seen this film prior to now is because of this notion that it was a bomb. Because mm. when it was released in 1977, I mean, how many tickets does the director of The Exorcist and The French Connection sell? You know what I mean? That's yeah. enough to have gotten my Absolutely. young guy into the theater because I like those films so much. Mm -hmm. um, the lore is that it was released a couple of weeks before or after Star Wars. Star Wars just sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Yeah. The other thing is that through all of these years, knowing that this film called Sorcerer by the director of The Exorcist exists, I assumed, I mean, I, I knew a little bit more about it since then, but I assumed for a long while that Exorcist, you it was a Sorcerer, element, right? now yeah. we're going to do something about Gandalf, you know, his, <laughs> you know Game of Thronesy shit. You know, that's what Sorcerer is all about. It couldn't be further from the truth, although... One of the first shots in, in Colombia is of this, um, what would you call that? Like a wall, uh, a carved out wall in the Colombian jungle of like a... Um, a, a figure. Yeah, a figure yeah. like an ant. Some like, sort of totem that was yeah. created. At some right, point. right, right. And then it's referenced later in the film. Maybe we'll talk about that. Is there sorcery at play at all? It turns out. That one of the trucks, because in Colombia, they would like write a name on the truck. They'd name the truck was called Sorcerer. Sorcerer and Lazaro. Was the other yeah. Lazarus. Lazarus. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I thought that just like that's the context of me yeah. starting this film. There is no sorcery whatsoever. <laughs> no. And I think that might be part of the problem with the film. Originally, is people see this title and they didn't get what they paid for. Yeah. Yeah. They expected to see Exorcist Part 2. Even William had said himself that he kind of regrets a little bit calling it that because it kind of made the assertion it was going to be like an extra bit. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a it's interesting. How do you market this film? You know what I mean? Like, this is a dark thriller, character study I mean, of a thriller. sword. I mean, well, I mean, the log line could not be simpler. Four men from varied backgrounds drive highly uh, uh, combustible, combustible yeah. TNT across the rutted streets not even streets paths Dude, of like, what, what are they driving through man it's not know, even it's i, I mean know. it's so perilous. and if they hit the wrong bump the, the truck could explode yeah and that's the film i mean yeah ultimately yeah. and i can't recommend this movie highly enough <laughs> yeah. well it's, it's fantastic but it, it really is yeah. i'm glad i'm glad we're i i expected that we were all gonna like this of one of course um because I mean, when you say it, Joe, yes, it does have, in a way, a premise that you can boil down, but it's not just about not. the suspense and the tension. It is it is this kind of character study. It is this interesting peek at, like, what drives somebody to do what they do. How does motivation work? Where does the... Um, where, where the lines people draw in terms of what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do? And 
how do the choices they made before, you know, prior to whatever we're seeing them do, impact whatever it is they're doing in the present moment, which I do think is a theme that Friedkin is constantly exploring throughout his work. And so that prologue stuff is incredibly important as much as it's somewhat short in in, in a sense, and like these little vignettes. I think there's such depth there, especially when we get to the jungle and we're seeing these guys kind of in what they're doing in the moment. And you see how that all plays into these actions that they're having to take later. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. The vignettes are important because that's where we can make judgment of these people's behavior, you know, and it's not OK. So like the French guy. Uh, the banker is Mary. We meet his wife. We see that he's a little smug. Uh, we see that they're wealthy or that she's wealthy. Well, he's French. You, d- you don't even really need to say he's smug. <laughs> no, I don't like that. to make those broad generalizations, David. You're not going to get me canceled today. Uh-huh. Hashtag I love French people. Um, hey, I, 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 she gives him an expensive watch as an anniversary or birthday gift. Mm. And then he needs that maybe later to barter with when he's in Colombia. Then we see Schneider, who is he and his little crew of, of gangsters go into a church bingo to steal the bingo proceeds and yeah. shoot, maybe kill a priest. Going into the Italian Catholic Church yeah. as part of the Irish mob. So they're taking the Italian right. mob's money. For- <laughs> but, uh, but it's an l- extra level of judgment. A, a gangster uh, robbing a gangster poker game I have less yeah. problem with than going into a church bingo game where those proceeds are typically for charity. You know, or m- maybe, maybe not. But but all under the control of the mob. I mean, certainly, that's the, certainly. Yeah. Uh, those mob guys give back from time to time. But it's allowing us oh, yeah. now to make judgments about these men before we meet them again uh, as drivers of a truck of dynamite. I hear where you're coming from, but I'm curious to and, and I'm curious to hear what Harold has to think about this. But like, I, I hear what you're saying, like you get to judge them sort of. But ultimately, aren't you just kind of forced to put that aside? Because none of these characters are anybody who you're really sympathizing. With. I mean, they, what well, they set up the, with, but the dude left his wife. What an asshole. You know, that kind well, of Well, that's thing. but that's what I mean. Like it, it kind of. It, well, no, you are judging them. You're right. I think it just it forces you into a weird predicament with characters where these are going to be the main characters you're following. And none of them are characters that you really see as ideal in any sense. You're not sympathetic to them whatsoever. No. I think that opening part of the movie, too, is, is something people look back in, in retrospect and see how important that was as mm. far as film goes. That was something that wasn't really done before, I don't think. That kind of opening section of or, uh, epilogue or prologue of the movie where it's there's almost no dialogue in English to the first 15 minutes of the movie. You're right. Yeah, right. It's all like it's form- kind of you're right from a formal yeah, standpoint. Like, this is disoriented. So imagine coming in, you know, as a regular viewer who wants to see the follow-up to Exorcist, whatever. <laughs> like, what the hell is this? Well, and it's interesting, too. I don't know. I noticed it more this time because I think I've seen it a few times, and so I start thinking about other things as I'm watching it. But one of the things I thought about was the prologues get progressively longer. Yeah. So the first one goes by in a Quick, flash. Yeah. I mean, it's like 45 seconds of mm-hmm. screen time, and it's a very – I mean, that's the one where he's a hitman. He goes yeah. in, and he shoots oh, somebody, so and he walks yeah. out. And if That's you're the opening not, scene. but it, but I'm just like I think about how most audiences walk into yeah. a film. Are they thinking like these first forty seconds it's like of the, the climax film, of a movie? <laughs> so many people, I yeah. think, including myself, yeah. I would say probably the first time they see that film, that first forty five seconds unfolds, and you're like, okay, am I supposed to pay attention to this character? Who yeah. who is this? Because then it jumps to the next thing. I think I think a lot of the the smartness of the movie too was the fact that you know movies have been dumbed down in the last 30, 40 years, probably since this came out. 
Yeah. And this movie doesn't give you any exposition. You're just kind of tossed right into this like milieu of like, here are these guys. Like, who the hell are they? Yeah. What are they doing? How's this going to become a movie? Yeah. And you have to just kind of trust the auteur to kind of guide you there. Yeah. I thought that was brilliant. It's it's exposition it's brilliant. through action That's in it. a way That's it. that yeah. you're right. Most filmmakers yeah. would never trust the audience. But filmmakers in the late 60s and 70s did that's, to a certain extent. That's what I was going to say is that the 70s had that. I'm writing it down for after hours. That's the trust, 70s you know? were the best decade in cinema. <laughs> well, this is, I, yes, this I, is I, I, the I'm new gonna, Hollywood. I'm, I'm, well, that's a broad statement, but I, I could probably agree to that, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> we discussed this on Saturday, didn't we? Yeah. Tune into after but, hours for a fight. Okay. Yeah, but, but I think also when you look at that opening part and freaking is just, he lets the viewer, you know, engage without having to like, lead them you know yeah like and it, it that to me drew me in even more well he, I had for, to he forces you to think he yeah. forces you like why am i seeing this what are these why am i see like these are reprehensible characters when yeah. am i going to see somebody i sympathize with because that is pretty off-putting and, and especially like the way he filmed especially the, the the scenes in jerusalem are really enthralling because they he, are it's like cinema verite mm. like he's putting you you know he, he started his document filmmaker handheld right? so, camera so it's yeah. just like you're in the action i'd read somewhere online that um when they filmed that scene in uh jerusalem you know of course the special effects whatever practical effects movie are incredible the bombs and the fire yeah are just breathtaking this movie and i guess uh, the, the editing in that explosion incredible but yeah. so so, but, so different than the, your modern day spectacles oh absolutely so, but, i oh, mean sure, watch, yeah, the wide shot to show the bigness yeah. of the yeah explosion. but then i guess the similar verite part that really taxes that when when that bombing happened in the movie, there was a real bomb that happened nearby. A oh, real okay, bomb. yeah. And he captured a lot of those people actually running, fleeing, in the panic, that scene. Oh, put them wow. in the movie. Wow. So That's he is documenting reality and yeah. putting it in a movie. So I thought that was really so that there's your, there's your four dudes, right? The Mexican assassin, the Palestinian bomber, yeah. our Roy Schneider. Did right. we say his name yet? Roy Schneider. Uh, he Roy Schneider. That's what I said. And, and Jackie Scanlon is is the original name? mob. Juan you know, Dominguez. But, but yes, they've all adopted. Uh, he's just a filthy gringo, Hispanic bro. surnames. Uh, yeah, he's Dominguez. He <laughs> Dominguez. he is Dominguez. And yeah, our French banker is uh, Serrano. Mm-hmm. Is is the name Serrano. he goes by? Yeah. So yes, they've assumed these other identities. They're quote unquote in hiding, trying to scrape trying to find a way to someplace else. They're all mostly fed up with being where they are. Yeah, so they're, they're trying money, to find an exit to leave. Exactly. Can help them get the so fake papers. This fortuitous yeah. event is going to help them get the money they need to That's move right. on. Right. So and you understand the motivation, yeah. right? Like what draws somebody to do this kind of dangerous work that is basically doomed uh, to death. Very, I mean it's very a high probability suicide yeah, mission. Yeah. A fool's errand for is, sure. You're in a desperate situation and that money could make the difference between you, you know, living here for the rest of your life or maybe getting to a spot where it's slightly better where, where you are, you know. And so begins this treacherous journey. Two teams of two, right. two old trucks that there's a nice, a nice Which montage you see, yeah. of them. They have to like put together. Assembling. Like, yes. Assembling, yeah. You know, basically Frankensteining <clears throat> these vehicles out of ramshackle parts that are right. strewn about i mean it is yeah. quite a sequence i <laughs> i, it's as like I was, mad max <laughs> as i'm watching something like this yeah. i'm always like kind of like i'd be fucked if i was in one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> i don't know how to put a truck together <laughs> like i could be desperate yeah. enough to have to get this yeah. but there's no way i could do what they're doing you put the truck together i'll drive it. i can't <laughs> help you and, and i'm just wondering my mind like what kind of fucking map are they using like yeah these roads are not documented oh there's just no. No- 
There's no right, way. Right, because there is a there, point where there's, there's no a map cross, quest or, you know, Google Maps. There's a they're fork, just, and one says, like, yeah. oh, there's no map for that one. Yeah. And, and your point is there's no map for there's either. There's no map for anything. <laughs> I mean, th- this is some extremely treacherous, so they, they, crazy they, terrain yeah. they're going through. They fill the beds of the truck with sand, yeah. set these three e- three boxes in each truck, six boxes total, and there's a shot every once in a while of, them, of them going uh, over rocks or over a wooden bridge yeah. or over around <laughs> around a curve and having to do a 17-point turn with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on a treacherous cliffside if you make one little miscalculation. And then he'll just shoot the he'll go to the static shot of the boxes in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's just a reminder constant yeah. sawdust, a reminder constantly of the stakes. The oh, stakes. Yeah. I, the I think as a viewer of the movie, you have to have a There's little bit tension of suspension there. of disbelief because when they first assess the situation they have to bring in this so we kinda of glanced over the part of where the oil company brings in like this uh whatever engineer or someone's gonna come in to, to tap to close the uh, explosion because uh, the terrorists, right, came in and blew up the mine, blew mm-hmm. up the uh, the well, right? So uh, now it's just a... Now it's, it's like you need Red Adair to come over here, John Wayne to come put it up, probably some whoever it is. So he devised a plan for the uh, TNT, but the TNT has been sitting for so long. And not been and turned. And it's not been turned that over time it's to leak nitroglycerin, which is super volatile. And I don't know if you all watch Lost at all. Yeah. Yeah. So this to me is like where Lost got the idea for the Black Rock. <laughs> oh, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, arts, the whole storyline. Remember mm-hmm. the same thing? They go to the, they find that ship and there's like dynamite and it's like leaking. Like, yeah, that makes come sense. On. Like, it's, yeah. That's where it comes from. Oh, I, I was like, oh, that. that's an aha moment. Like, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, there so, are no new ideas. Yeah. No, there, there really isn't. There really no, isn't. no. For me, there was genuine tension. Yeah. Uh, for me, when Sorcerer comes to Alamo yeah. Drafthouse on the big screen, I will go see it. This mm-hmm. is a film well, that deserves that big screen yeah. treatment. And I know that as stressed out as I was on my very comfortable sofa with the popcorn that I'd made and watching <laughs> Sorcerer on in the middle of the day, that it would have been even more enhanced on, on a big screen experience. And not to mention, this restoration they did is spectacular. Sure. Yeah. It looks so good. It looks great. The, the new 5.1 mix was fantastic. Yeah, uh, I thought it just looked and sounded great. But we got to get to these bridge sequences because eventually, <laughs> oh, man, eventually, see, that's there, it. because there's that's no, all, I mean, there's action. One of the two trucks is raided by local rebels, and there's a shootout. You know, I mean, there's some action sequences yeah. there, but the real action here is just well, these men who I think I have grown to. Not You're rooting for not them a little bit. I'm rooting for them. Yeah. That's it. I'm rooting for them, even though in their own ways, they each are despicable beings, as it's yeah. been you know, delivered to us at the beginning of the film. Are they going to make it? Are yeah. they going to make yeah. it? Yeah. Are they going to yeah. make it? Yeah. And it's a kind of a Sophie's choice. Who's it going to be? Yeah. Which, right. which truck I think is Roy Scheider, if anyone's going to make it, it's going to well, be the one star, that makes it. He's know. the star of the movie. But, yeah. but, but that, that whole scene is just one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen in Which cinema. scene? Set it up for us. The, the bridge. So, so they're, so, Everything is treacherous. Right? Everything is at any minute they could fall off a cliff. They're going over this this wooden bridge that's like brittle and falling apart. <laughs> the potholders, they're all over the place. And, right. and you know, and they're and they're also like staggered, right? So they're about fifty miles apart, give or take, right? So in case yeah. one blows up, the ones will blow up with it, right? So there's always this like cat and mouse with each team, Serrano's team and Dominguez's team, whatever, yeah. whatever Scanlon is yeah. trying to reach the goal and then of course here comes the greed well if they die i get their share of the money so now i'm going to get forty thousand dollars pesos i suppose ten thousand pesos right yeah so they're <laughs> they get to this bridge and it's the most rickety 
beat up yeah. uh, out of like the worst scene of like Indiana Jones right, you can right. imagine. And they're the, going to take the these bridge, yeah. beat up, rusted ass trucks that have like just torn multi-ton shit. trucks. Yeah, over a and and it's a an raging storm, bridge. and there's there's sideways rain, and it's just this surging river is coming. And they got to get across it. Oh, wow. And it's yeah. like, how is this even going to be possible? Oh, it's, but it's some of the most it is so harrowing tense. footage. It is really incredible how they pulled it off. And so, so practically done. I mean, this is yeah, not. And, and, and I, I, so this movie apparently had a huge budget. It was around $20 million in the yeah, 70s, at the time, a 70s huge budget, money. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it only grossed well, like $9 million, I yeah, think, domestically yeah. or worldwide. Uh-huh. So that's a big failure. But they said this scene alone cost them about $3 million to do. Yeah. And something like twelve hundred setups, and that is to make it happen. That is with almost zero attention to safety. Yeah, when they were doing like, mm-hmm. th- you know, Friedkin has gone on the record Himself later in his life driving when it flipped over. He said, but too. saying that like the stuff that he was yes. doing in the seventies, like around this film, yeah. the French Connection, some of those action uh-huh. sequences, he was completely yeah. irresponsible <laughs> and and like yeah. not so you know but they did it for three risk. million but if yeah. they were really doing this in a way that would have been, it probably would have cost them two three times yeah. that yeah and, and i guess he, he, he spoke about how they i was wondering how the hell did they film this how did they do it and i guess there was some kind of hydraulic rail system underneath the bridge that okay the truck was attached to it okay. had to have been and yeah. that's how they did yeah. it but i mean that's the beauty of this movie too is to me the practical effects yeah you know we're we're so desensitized now it's what we see on on movies now with everything is cgi everything is created post-production and and the color correcting this movie the the explosions the fire yeah it's just real and it's like so and it makes the movie so much more intense when you see those fires going off at the at the the derrick yeah and you see the everything happening the just sweat like it, it's, glistening on the oh, guy the movie makes you feel wet i know <laughs> that's I, I mean joe was talking about the, the tension like it, it's yeah. just you get shots mm-hmm. of whether it be Scheider or or uh, creamer just or whatever just like driving and like intently staring mm-hmm. forward but they're just sopping what you know like yeah. droplets all over yeah. and I think, I think it was yeah. ungodly hot when they were sure. shooting. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so I don't, I, but even that said, like it totally works in terms of the story that's being told yeah. and what, what kind of position these guys were in. So you're, you're watching the scene of the um, crossing of this bridge. And of course, the, the main guy, Shatter's team, gets through. And, you know, then you're waiting for Serrano to get by. And it looks like they're not going to make it. Yeah. Like they're like at the very end, the bridge is going to collapse. They get hit by some errant trees and trying to, you know, furiously kind of chop them down. And you think they're going to be dead. And uh, by some miracle, they, they make it through. Yeah. But there's another, another uh, obstacle the winch, in the road. After the guy's almost been like yeah. essentially run over by it because he's fallen yeah. through the sl- I mean, it is just yeah, it's as crazy. intense as it gets. It really is like a singular – they use that image at least for one version of the poster. I saw that, that, I saw that you know, yeah. like a, of the the truck. It's just again, I, me- I mentioned like the French Connection, that car chase being an iconic kind of mm-hmm. like to me. Sorcerer didn't get that level of notoriety overall, but I do think that image people are kind of familiar with it. It was it's yeah. on the the uh, cover of the soundtrack, which yeah. Uh, yeah, is, is a Tangerine Dream. It's here. Their, first, their first soundtrack they made too. It is yeah. so good. Yeah. That the soundtrack is so good and so well used because yeah. it's yeah. not just a constant. It, it's drone. very sparse. It's, they don't use yes. it all the time. Right, right. Just like creepy, atmospheric, very good. unsettling. And then I read too that like a lot of the the uh, sound effects in the movie were actually like for the trucks themselves. Yeah, were actually like samples of like animals. That oh, they would really? like take them and like alter them to make that. the machine oh, wow. to make the make, make the cars and the trucks sound a little more 
primitive, a little more Carnal, like jungle, yeah. ferocious. Huh. Which is really smart. Yeah. But, you know, after that huge set piece, right, with, with the tr- with the uh, bridge, like, what else could happen next? But <laughs> then they come across another obstacle, this huge tree that yes. they got to get through. And, of it course, rig up this everyone system. gets their chance to shine, right, in the movie. Yeah. Everyone has their, their set of skills. And uh, the Palestinian guy gets to uh, blow it up. So yeah. the, the explosive that, that was really familiar cool. with detonation. Of yeah, course, yeah. 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 No, it, and, and you're right. And, and even after that, you know, we get these moments but that aren't quite as – you know, as Joe has already alluded to, there's the standoff with these sort of, uh, I mean, they, they rebels, say they're stealing yeah, for their the village, rebels. what you know, rebels who, who are who are trying to pull stuff, uh, resources for their for their people. But you do get so so when when they first negotiate the uh, the deals for the uh, how much they're going to get paid, the French guy who's the finance guy gets them more money, right? That's right. The, yeah. the, the assassin kills all the the bad guys. Yeah. The Palestinian guy. Yeah. Works with the explosives. Works with the explosives. Yeah. What is Sh- Schreider's a driver? Yeah, so he's, he's a driver. He's a right. Schreider's the driver who makes it to the end. Yeah, he's a driver. Yeah. So and he's cool. he's, a, he's a getaway driver for the for the mob. Right. Though so. the thing that haunts him, right? We t- I I mentioned in the yeah. beginning, like all the of these accident. characters kind of have these yeah. things hanging over him. Yes, he was a driver, but it was his driving that cost they, they got him the there. life of sure. his his uh, team and yeah. put him in a situation yeah. where he had to flee. So it's it, I mean it's just these things haunt you know, and there is that the sequence there where you're getting the flashbacks as Scheider is kind of making that final, oh, yeah. you know, in incremental. That desert, whatever that weird, yeah. uh, it was filmed in New Mexico, I believe, what I read so Is it? Yeah. I mean, the colors in some mm-hmm. of that, like the sky is just odd. and, mm-hmm. and But the, the way they captured it is great. And you're getting these flashbacks to these moments of that botched getaway and what was going on in his head. And you know that character is haunted by that. You know that's like the defining moment sure. of that character's life. And in fact, we see very much at the end of the film, yeah. it you know, show it being something that will he'll never be free of um, until he's ended. I mean, we're a spoiler podcast, folks, but yeah, I mean, the, I the love yeah. that. And the ending of this the film, am, the, ambu- the ambiguous ending. I don't think it's all that ambiguous. Okay, well, so <laughs> well, you know, I think I think it's more like it's a punctuation. Of, well, like the Sopranos, let's it's skip very... the spoilers of whether or not the dynamite gets there. But for reasons, Scheider is in the bar. Okay, fuck it. He gets the dynamite there, and now he's being, <laughs> yeah. He's we know he makes paid. it. Yeah. Well, you got to talk about how, how he does it. He, the last two miles, the truck breaks down. Uh, the assassin guy dies. Right, he's dead. Right, he's been shot, he's by, been shot by, by the guys the they were held up by. Yeah. He's in this strange, like, monolithic kind of desert situation, yeah, mm-hmm. and he's hallucinating all these. He's, like, going mad. He's, yeah. He goes mad, yeah. He's going crazy. And then the last two miles of truck, so yes, he actually carries a dynamite. That's right. On foot yeah. and arrives at the scene of the, the burning derricks and collapses on the ground. Right. He's a hero. Yes. You know? he, and, and He's a hero. Yes. In the end. At, he is. Yeah, he is. He is. He is. He's the hero. But he does not escape his fate. <laughs> he does not escape. Well, his that's fate. that's up to uh, that's up to the viewer to decide. Okay, so what happens, David? So the, after we have him collapsing, we get a scene in a bar where he is there with the representative from the company who's saying, like, you know, like, yes, what, you know, we're we're going to pay you. Don't worry, we're going to cash this check for you. Can he, he gets his um, fake passport. His fake passport. He's yeah. going to be able to leave. He's like, you know, but can he can can he hold can you hold the plane? Oh, for you, we'll hold the plane. And and he dances with a woman. There's like a little poetic ending, yeah, maybe like beautiful. this woman who he's. But then we cut to the outside of the bar, like a crane shot up yeah. from above. We see a car pull up, and we see these guys get out. Who, hopefully, you recognize from mm-hmm. one of those vignettes who were the mobsters who were yeah. looking for Jackie Scanlon. Yeah. 
And you see them, or at least the lead guy, walk into the bar right after that. To me, that has always, even the first time I saw it, felt like, oh my God. It felt like such a gut punch where it was like, oh my God. Breathe that sigh of relief. (laughs) He got... The, at least somebody came out of this. And yeah, they're all terrible people, but maybe he's learned something. I don't know. But no, that's not the message that this film has, for me, at least. And at the very least, it is wedging it open to make you think, like, he's probably not escaped all the trouble in his life. Well, I think I think the core of the movie is there's no redemption for these people. Yeah. There's no redemption. So even though the ending is very ambiguous, you don't see what happens. Yeah. I believe that Friedkin wants you to know what happens. Like, yeah. You know. He did not. Escape I don't need to fate. know what happens. I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I think I'm not dissatisfied that was beautiful. not seeing him be shot well, or seeing perfect. him escape. Even if it's poetic, I think the fact that Scanlon messed up so royally and through his profession, he was a driver. He messed up the worst way. He killed yeah. the rest of his team. He barely limped away with his life. I mean, he's going to be haunted by that. It almost doesn't matter if the assassin gets him at that point. He's never going to escape. Yeah, this sort sure. of, you know, th- th- this cloud that hangs over him. I don't know. It's it's a beautifully, <laughs> upsettingly, but beautifully poetic so, kind of so, ending. So I listened to the, um, I went back and listened last week to Friedkin on uh, Mark Maron's podcast. Mm-hmm. They, they talked about that scene. And, and Maron says, you know, what's up with that gunshot? And Friedkin's like, well, it could be a gunshot or it could be a truck backfiring. <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy that. And, and he st- he said it's actually a truck backfiring. That's it's not a gun. It's oh, a truck backfiring. Oh, that's the sound effect that they use. That's what yeah. he said. That's what they used. Interesting. Yeah. So he says, "Take it or leave it." Yeah, he's and, a, he's an interesting cat. I, well, this is but this is what we were talking about earlier. This is a dividing line of sorts. Like the yeah. fact that this came out the same weekend as Star Wars is yeah. in itself poetic because you had the potential of the new Hollywood to make these kind of gray, morally ambiguous yeah. character studies of anti-heroes. That's what this film is. It's in that mode. Yeah. And then you had this parallel thing going on in New Hollywood, which actually ended up taking on the the much bigger uh, you know life and be, and becoming the dominant and that was like the blockbuster mentality yeah. that fed Lucas and Spielberg and you know like telling like stories right to big audiences yeah it's like, well, happening again and I'm not you know <laughs> led I, by yeah. Lucas and Spielberg yeah. but that got all of the studios to go oh yes well, yeah. I didn't realize we can make so Marketing, much money out of the movie let's toys, do that but you know make source, meals all that yeah, stuff I mean yeah. it's huge yeah but Sorcerer is just that morally ambiguous yeah. troubling it forces you to think about about like, yeah, th- there's degrees of good and evil in all of us, you know, th- that there are going to be things that you're driven to do that really almost have nothing to do with your personal hopes or aspirations and just like the hand that's been dealt to you or the things that have kind of, you don't come out of a, in general, a William Friedkin film, but certainly this one feeling like, oh, okay, at least the hero got, you know, like that never happens. You end up feeling like we're all compromised mm-hmm. <laughs> we all make bad decisions we all have these terrible circumstances we have to deal with and it's it's disquieting i mean it's not these aren't pleasant films to watch and i think part of the curse of this movie also was there, that this movie being a failure when it came out uh, people kind of have said that it's kind of the death of the 70s auteur like it it took yeah. away that momentum. Well, I think it did. It killed it that did. kind of they movie. Said, they or said part that in Heaven's that. Gate. Those it's two, yeah. those, it's those one two of two or three like, movies that yeah. where studios gave. I'm not going to give you the money to make gave your the financing to these auteurs yeah. because we can see that this seems to yeah. be the trend with your Scorsese's mm-hmm. and your Coppola's and your yeah. And there were two or three notable quote unquote bombs yeah. that 
turn that siphon off or turn you know, it and, down. And you mentioned Coppola, and uh, I was reading about the movie again, and also there was this kind of friendly, you know, back and forth between him and Coppola, I guess. Yeah. Coppola had done Apocalypse Now. He's like, this is my movie. I'm going to go to a jungle the same way. Yeah. Make a movie. He got malaria. It's troubled production. Two yeah. years in the making. Way over budget. Star yeah. has a heart attack. Freaking lost like 50 pounds making the movie. He had malaria afterwards. Yeah. So. Well, and, and all of them, I think, in some ways inspired by Herzog and what he had done. Oh, I saw this. Gear Gear I want to say, yeah. So, a, a Gear Wrath of God definitely has a lot of similarities. Um, what else? He also mentioned uh, Houston's movie. Uh, oh, Treasure S- of the Sierra, Sierra Madre. Madre. That's yeah. like his favorite movie of all time. And you can see some of those oh, similarities. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the whole, like, subject of this, like, a ragtag group of guys going on a mission. Dirty we've dozen. seen before. Dirty oh, sure. Dirty Seven Samurai, right? It, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a theme that goes on through cinema, but his version, I thought, was just, this is spectacular. It's beautiful. Movie. You need to watch it. And as down and out a group as you can have. Sure, yeah. yeah. It's... It, th- this is a movie, as, we, as I was saying, as we kind of introduced this whole concept, like, this is one of those films that in its moment did not get a lot of love that, you know, critics were kind of like, what is this? Audiences were not even paying attention. They they were too into the the big shiny object that was out there. And it just kind of languished and it kind of sat there and it was looked at as a failure. As the years have gone on, I think people have gone back to it and and seen it. And, you know, by the time I saw it, which would have been probably in the early 2000s, after I had seen several other William Friedkin films, it was one of those that I, you know, people were already talking about mm-hmm. is like, oh, this is a film from his, you know, his filmography that yes, it's this kind of sad failure because it certainly turned his career into a slightly different direction. He wasn't able to get the budgets he was, wasn't able to get the kind of projects off the ground that he once was. But boy, is it interesting. And, it, and yeah. he didn't just squander the money that he was able to get at that time. It's just, it didn't catch on. It, it, it wasn't the path that was followed. You know, everyone talks about 70s cinema, cinema verite from the 70s and the style. You took, Scorsese looms large. Yeah. But I think this movie in particular, when I think about 70s film, this is one that I would recommend to just to see what I'm talking about. The genre. Yeah. The, the way they the way they film things, the practical effects. I mean, just all of it just kind of encompasses a whole style of set. It's that grittiness, yeah. That realism. It's a yeah. beautiful film. I yeah. agreed. Well, is this a beautiful beer? <laughs> <laughs> now, I know that David. I mean, the word pilsner and the words Jester King on the can. I yeah. know we're gonna sculpt some of your expectations. So I'm eager to hear as our pilsner guy. What do you think? <laughs> I, you know, th- this is right up my alley. I, I, I really, uh, I appreciate Harold, um, the, the thought there that, you know, I have gravitated towards those crispier, uh, lighter lagers as, uh, I've aged. And here I am at this day and age. Anytime I get the chance to try a new Pilsner, I'm excited. This is one of my favorite breweries, uh, of the last decade, yeah, sure. you know, and, and being a, a Texan at this point, like it, it's one of my home state beverage, you sure. know, beverage makers that I can really kind of stand behind and always, even though they have changed their model, uh, as time goes on, I think it's they maintain an very integrity in our market. Now. It is. And I love that it is. I mean, it's, it's great that we can get this quality beer off the shelves because to me, this is, an outstanding Pilsner. This is right up there with, you know, I, there's a few others in Texas that I love. I love Real Ales Hans's Pils. I love the pre-war Pils from Live, Live Oak. Oak. For sure. I, I mean, th- those are some beers that I would put right up there in the pantheon of like all-time favorite beers for me. This is close. I, and with enough 
uh, more cans in the future, I think this could be in that pantheon for me as well. I think they've really nailed it. Especially because being where they're located in the hill country, there's such a rich tradition of German culture in yes. that part of Texas. They yes. kind of came down here and moved here post-war or whatever, and it just kind of makes sense that they would go back to their roots and do this. And I remember they made a collaboration beer with uh, Live Oak back in the day called Collaboration Beer. Yeah. And it was their first, like, collaboration slash Pilsner. Uh-huh. It was pretty good. But it you know, had some wild had some wild use. I think it was they a mix did, of yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was a good one. But this is great. This is what you expect to see. Clarity right there. I yeah. mean, it's so clear. These little micro bubbles coming in. A nice lingering head stays on top. It's like a little foam on top here. Um, 4.8%. Yeah, perfect. Crushable. Real easy. Yeah. Crushable. I have, I have nothing to add. Uh, I've enjoyed this very, very much. So are you coming around on Pilsers now a little bit? <clears throat> <laughs> no, we'll I, save that I, for I, after. I, I, I understand the stigma. <laughs> I understand no, no, the stigma. It's a good conversation. But from, from a craft beer drinker's point of view, we... You know, we as a collective, we had away from, you know, fizzy yellow beer. Yeah. yeah. And that was the allure of it. Oh, my God. Here's a beer that's made with, like, molasses and it has cinnamon and chocolate and it's fermented in barrels. Wow, it's exciting. And this is just, this is Budweiser, right? There is no. Budweiser done well. Ooh, but th- you, this is Budweiser no, but with I'm a saying, finely oh, tuned. But, but I'm saying, but, yeah. but that's the same style of beer. No, you're right. You're it right. It was Budvar or whatever, but this is made by a craft by artisans. You know, it's different. Yeah. With, with no syrups, you know, yeah, and yeah. all of those things yeah. that make the macro beers sure. macroable is Beachwood uh, age. a, <laughs> whatever that a shit false is. sense of flavor <laughs> yeah, through right. cheap ingredients. Um, there is no reason why I don't like Pilsners. Yeah. There's no reason why when I go to 40 Taps at my favorite craft mm-hmm. beer bar and a big chalkboard that I go to IPAs 100% of the time sure. first until it's cool, cool weather, and then I'm going to go to the weirdest stout that It's you just have. your taste. You, it's you, not, you, you it like is my that. taste, yeah. but my tastes are formed through my behavior. So now what I am doing, and I've been doing for a good long while, it started with the stouts is saying, let me try the thing that I know is probably going to be good, but is outside of this prejudice. Sure. Yeah. That's all that I can yeah. call it that I have. So I am trying to say, especially when it's a hundred and goddamn 10 degrees outside, <laughs> maybe a Gosa, maybe because yeah. I, sure. I don't sure. dislike them. Yeah. They just aren't my favorite. Well, so you, then you, let me get them prefer, up the list by trying them a little bit. You prefer ales over lager. That's, that's the big, doubt. that's the big, you know. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. That is a palate yeah. preference sure. that I have, Just but it's not like I'm spitting out a yeah. lager because it's yeah. so detested. You know, that's not what's happening. Well, I think for a lot of, I don't know, you know, you guys pipe in, but like for a lot of us in craft beer, I think what initially drew us to it was that there was this, I mean, I'm going to use a big word here, folks. There was a hegemony what? of adjunct lagers, okay? <laughs> that like, yeah. if you wanted to yeah. drink beer, and I was That's kind of, I'm looking at it in a positive light now yeah. because I've gone through this experience with craft beer. But, you know, now I can think, oh, this is the like sort of platonic ideal of beer. It pours nice and, you know, sort of pale golden yellow and the nice white head. And like, at one time I would have thought that's a marker of just, generic that's a, that yeah, is basic, a marker yeah. of you're just churning out the same thing everybody yeah. else is churning out lowest common denominator and so what i was looking for when i went to craft beer was difference was flavor yeah. was like okay punch me in the taste buds with how bitter you can get this beer because yeah. i oh, want to see what that, that was happens. the beginning I, it sure, definitely yeah. was the stone beers yeah right early on, yeah. A west coast ipa in yeah. general was kind of like this search for the ibu the most num- bitter beer exactly possible. like we're yeah. gonna boil this for three hours <laughs> well it's 120 minutes two uh, hours oh no i had one from um <laughs> 
McKellar was called a thousand IBU. Ooh. Oh my god, that thing was rough. <laughs> it was like licking a <laughs> but there pine cone. And then you know, and then we yeah. kind of course, course correct, yeah. and we go back to oh, but we can tease out the juicier kind of citrusy yeah, parts the of the bitterness hot. went away. We can bring in sweeter elements mm-hmm. to you know stouts and less malt. We can little, turn them blue and less malt and a little more fruit fruitiness. But yeah. I feel like we've played around with different so much. If you've been doing the craft beer thing for it, like now it's less exciting for me to see like what crazy flavors do you put together i'm still impressed when people do it well don't get me wrong we'll, we'll still drink those then i i'm less impressed by that than i am can you just deliver really a nice subtle nuanced version of whatever style you're going for and but, i get but, that a lot more in pilsners and exactly you know lower abv beers than i do in the higher but ABV i will stuff. say to make a beer of this caliber yeah. requires more skill than just putting some hops in a fucking barrel. Totally agree. That's why a lot of people- You can hide be, a lot yeah. of sins if, behind that. If you look at adjuncts. any brewery that opens up anywhere, first yeah. time brewery, what do they make? It's always ales. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it's a blonde. It's the same bullshit. It's never going to be like a lager their first beer because yeah. this requires- you know, lagering, it requires precision. Precision, it requires temperature control. Yeah. You know, when you're home brewing at home, what do you make? You make lager. You yeah. make ales. You don't make Absolutely. lagers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anyone who's a home brewer at home is going to make a basic, a brown ale or something simple to start out with. Yeah. This requires a lot more precision and skill. Yeah. And, and I think that's why you've seen in the last five, six years, breweries have started to make now lager. You have breweries like Beerstadt, Suarez. Oh, and man, these people that, are like, I are hit at that the, place at, when I was in at Denver. At the cutting oh, edge of making. God. and. I never thought we'd have like a craft lager brewery. Yeah. But I think the first one was Jack's Abbey. That okay. was from, from, okay. uh, from Boston. I they think you distilled that. the question perfectly when it's like you prefer ales over lagers. Yeah. And I do. Sure. So now I mean, it's opened my eyes to this notion of, well, if the craft beer world is two things and you're eliminating half of mm-hmm. them by some mm-hmm. weird prejudice mm-hmm. or whatever it is, well, then you're not getting the full experience. So yeah. I enter the world now looking to find excellence in that other thing so Absolutely. they can boost the ratings up for we, the we can have both star wars and sorcerer in sure, this world sure sure but can we have <laughs> but can we have yeah. attack of the clones and you know what i'm saying yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay yeah all right the, that's where we get into some Jeez. crazy uh fruit slushy maybe after uh, hours <laughs> after our conversation where you get blue, star wars. blue beers is, that stain your teeth and i should not be surprised at all that we just had one of our lengthiest beer discussions on yeah. the main episode so about longer had with with Harold here. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was happy for, for that. No, yeah. me too. That that's well, let's move on. Shall, shall we call beer in a movie? So okay. that's, that's right. Beer crack needs open to be another there. beer. We're gonna watch another freaking or discuss another freaking film in just a moment. Ooh. So stay right where you are, please. So I thought after watching the first Friedkin film, I thought I'd say, give me some more. (laughs) Give me some more Friedkin. Nice. Okay. This is Nebraska Brewing Company's Give Me S'more Vanilla Brown Ale. Uh, Pick these up in Houston at a fancy schmancy beer store. It says drink indie. It says this uniquely flavored brown ale introduces the campy favorite s'more to craft beer. That's probably not true. I'm sure there's been s'more beers Definitely up not. and down oh, yeah. the dial. The aromatic, I feel like we've had a couple. Of I think we have. Yeah. The aromatic flavors, marshmallow, chocolate, and graham derived from malts and vanilla transports you in time to your last or future outdoor excursion. Wonderful at any time. This is 5.2. 
ABV. Well, I'm surprised to see Nebraska Brewing Company back in or in, in I, our, in our, I haven't seen them in quite a while. Well, well, I, I, I got this in Houston. Just to, and I don't remember ever seeing them cans. in cans. They always had like the, the you those know, big 750s. Format, yeah. 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 yeah, so yeah. That's and they would have those hefty yeah. imperial uh, stouts mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yep. Yeah. I remember oh, smell this thing. Oh, sweet as hell. That is. Oh, but it's, all, like, a, it's like a light amber. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a not, beautiful color. Because it's, it's a vanilla brown ale. Oh, is what they're saying. So, but I'm definitely getting. The marshmallow, very sweet. Yeah, you, you sipped or you're just saying on sipped. The nose? I'm just saying on the nose, it's just cloyingly sweet. Hmm. Yeah, I'm almost getting like caramel, but I think that's probably like the graham cracker. And I get the, a lot of like synthetic marshmallow. In the yeah, nose. yeah. It smells like, like those those marshmallow jelly beans you get. That's what it smells like. Like it's almost like it's Toasted. making me think of like it smells a, really good, like a cream soda. Yeah, you know what I mean. Really Not good. a cream ale, but a cream soda. All right. All right. Well, we're wow. going to try this, and we're going to talk about it here in just a little while. But first, we're going to talk about another Friedkin film. Okay, so 67 is his first feature, Good Time. Sonny and Cher are the stars. He has referred to this film as unwatchable. He, <laughs> he makes three more films through 1970. 71 is, of course, The French Connection. 73, of course, The Exorcist, his follow-up to The Exorcist, Sorcerer. Then he makes a film called The Brinks Job. It's a crime caper. Caper comedy. Which is actually pretty funny. I, yeah, you have I've seen, seen it? I've seen I that mean, before. I'm okay. a sucker for Peter Falk, so yeah. Okay. His follow-up to that is 1980's Cruising. That's the film we're going to be discussing today. I had been mildly aware of its existence. I did, you know, that Al Pacino starred in it, and that it had some protests or something when it came out because it was going to be about gay culture in 1980 or 1979. Mm-hmm. But that's all I really knew about this movie, and um, I was eager to watch it because I had heard like sorcerer that while it had gotten some kind of negative reaction or didn't make a lot of money it has since maybe grow, grown in esteem over time that's all i knew about cruising um prior to now uh i can fill us in on a little bit more about it or maybe someone wants to take the ball and run with it i mean you, you've set up nicely the context sure for it, but like, too, like the, the the basic story here well I mean, I mean i got a little synopsis here it's new yeah. york city and body parts of men are showing up in the hudson river the police suspect it's to the work of a serial killer who's picking up gay men at west village bars such as the Eagle's Nest, the Ramrod, the Cockpit, and taking them to cheap rooming houses nearby, motels, and then tying them up and stabbing them to death. Captain Edelson, played by Paul Sorvino, or Polly from Goodfellas. Is Edelman. Edel- Edelstein. <laughs> yeah. Right. He asks Officer Steve Burns, played by Al Pacino, to go deep undercover into the world of gay S&M and leather bars in the meatpacking district in order to track down the killer. We should say he's dating at the time Nancy, played by Karen Allen, a.k.a. Marion from Indian Anna Jones. I don't need to tell you that. You Which that already. Raiders is 80 as well. I believe so. Yeah. So this was the same year same, that she was marrying Raven. The, the Karen Allen double punch. <laughs> I think you could ask for that at the cockpit. Listen. <laughs> what color hanky do I need for that? <laughs> I think it would be brown and a brown some, hanky some for it. Possibly, yeah. So I had to look up when the AIDS crisis really began. A little bit after it was after this, this. Was after after this because yeah. I just couldn't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it was in the 80s, early 80s, but uh, right after this. But this is pre-AIDS, gay bars, 
I understand it. Looking, doing a little research. Friedkin had gone to many of these establishments, gotten permission from the owner of these establishments to do plenty of research and plenty of filming inside. And in fact, used a lot of the clientele in the bars as the extras, you know, the dancers and people dancing on the dance floor, that kind of thing. Do you remember Police Academy? And there was a running yes. joke of uh, what it was, was that the, bar was called? it the Blue Oyster or something that, like something? that in the Blue Moon or something? Yeah, and it, yeah. I'll look it up. And it was the uh, characterization, like the caricaturization of these gay leather bars. Mm. Well, this is that the real but prior it's real. to that, it's yeah. visceral, real. Yeah. And it's uh, Al Pacino in a very interesting performance, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so you're right, Joe. This this was sort of controversial in its moment. As it was being made, there were people yeah. showing up to the location, protesting the actual protesting, filming and absolutely. screaming. And yes, I heard about that. Right. About so, like that. the the community. I mean, I say that you know, like which any community is always a multiplicity of things. But there was a portion of the gay community at the time that was very vociferously against the making of this film That's because right. of what they feared would be this kind of negative pall over the community based on focusing in on this very specific segment. Now, almost nobody has ever said like, well, he was making this up. Like, no, this scene existed. These bars existed. As you said, Joe, he was largely casting people who were regulars of these places mm-hmm. to do what they did when they were in those places to to give it that authentic kind of uh, element. But it was only a portion of the gay community. Yeah. And this is an era where, you know, gay visibility was just starting yeah. to become a thing, right? Where it wasn't just something that subtly and under the like, oh, that's that's the character who doesn't have a wife and he mm-hmm. speaks a little bit differently. And he ca- I think the protests were very loud and. And for two reasons. Number yeah. one, if you are going to demonstrate to America at large what gay is, we this isn't they're going to get confused because this is a segment. Well, if that's of if a gay that's what world. you're watching this film to be like, hey, show me what it means to be gay. Yeah. This is a terrible film. But that wasn't Friedkin's intent, and that wasn't the. I don't think that was ever the intent. Of the and story. number two, it's a serial killer who is targeting gay men, and we hate gays in America. And if I see this film, that's a good idea. I should be targeting gay men. Yeah. That was their other concern, and, and for that actually actually happened in the film. There was some post, right? Uh, hate crimes happened, murders happened, but I think part of the protest, I think, was also because yeah, you're you're taking a small segment of the population of the gay gay culture, the gay community, yeah. and you're highlighting this one subsect of it that's right. a little more extreme, right? And they felt like they were going to be then just, everyone thought they'd all be the same. You're yeah. basically going to put a label on all gays that they all do this stuff, right. they're all the same. Well, when we're not the representing same, and they're not, yeah. the community at all, and then we throw this out. And I think I think also, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, I would imagine that, you know, a lot of the, the gay culture back then was also very secretive. Yeah. There were things people didn't know about. Oh, sure. So now this guy's exposing their underground culture, and that's like for them. So I think they have to, you know what? This is not for you to show. Let us show you what we want to. When we're ready to show you, we'll show you. I did hear you to show me that. In an interview, say, in hindsight, Mm -hmm. demonstrating that this is what gay culture is, I might not have helped the movement. And I think that's a responsible thing to say. Yeah. I don't think, though, that we stop films from being made. for any no, subject, but you know, that you know in, in hindsight, now looking at it, it's important this movie was made. It's mm. important that it happened. It's a snapshot. It really is important. You know, and, well, and, and it's. I, I think people who probably criticized it back then can look now with with older eyes, and you know what? I was wrong. 
I yeah. should have actually praised this movie. It's actually mm -hmm. being brave and going outside the parameters yeah. of what's acceptable to show you something that wasn't, you know, well, relatable. Well, there's so much more to this than just oh, right. Get us into a, it. Yeah. an exposure. Well, I mean, so, you know, at, at its core, we have not something we've never seen before, but a character, Steve Burns, the, the Al Pacino character, going undercover and taking on a new identity yeah. to sort of integrate himself into this scene that sort of exists, right? A scene that he's never been part of. We, we, we you know, we established that he's a young cop, you know, m maybe with a bit of ambition. The captain recognizes him, sees him as somebody who body type wise might fit this profile of what this killer seems to be going after mm -hmm. and thinks, look, you might be good bait here. <laughs> and maybe we're going to, what? This is what happens, <laughs> right? Exactly no, that's what happens. And yeah. you, you might go out there. You're going to might... get uh, possibly killed, but here you go. Yes, well, right. But, you, but you're you'll get, get close enough this. to the killer to yeah. detect it, right? And so, you know, it's like you're Donnie Brasco, which he's in, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. but like this, what happens when a character goes undercover? Well, the character finds out through that performance of the other that they aren't all that separate from the other. Like they're, they have made different choices in their life and they've had different experiences that have led them on a different path. But that doesn't mean that they could not have taken another path. And it doesn't mean that they could not have experienced another life. And by doing that is kind of coming into this direct contact with this other way of being that maybe seemed unfathomable to him at one point in his life, but suddenly becomes very real and starts becoming his reality. And, and that's, again, freaking messing with the ambiguity. Yeah. Like yeah. his character, definitely, there's a lot of ambiguity there. Well, and it's, I, I think, so I'm, I'll, I'll come right out and say it. I do think this film is is kind of a little masterpiece uh, of a film for a lot of reasons. But one of them, I think, is the level of he Friedkin is giving us just enough of this character that we can read so many things into his experience. We know he's struggling. Right. And we, we yeah. get probably most emphatically, we get the scene where Burns meets up with uh, the captain, Paul Sorvino's right. character at the subway station. Right. And he's just like, he's freaking out. I don't out. think I can he's do like, this, He's like, I can't do this. Yeah. I, it's getting into, you know, like, but he's not as explicit about like, well, what is it? it do, yeah, do you know, you he says, he you says it's not that I'm scared about being killed by a soda. Right. It, it's just getting into my head, man. Yes. Yeah. I think he's he's getting a little too comfortable. Hoo <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> that is decades before I ever see that again. Yeah. Uh, he did not do that. He didn't do the hoo I wish he would have. Yeah. Well, <laughs> But, but, but you were saying there's some empty. But what I'd say is like, you know, well, what is it that's plaguing Burns? And he never really, Burns doesn't articulate it clearly. We don't get, kinda, we never see. Kind of. A little bit of exposition when he, he breaks sure. up with his girlfriend. Yeah. He says, like, I can't, I, I gotta get out of here. You know, I, yeah. I, this is me doing Pacino, by the way. Yeah. I gotta get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's all I gotta do. They break up, uh, you know, maybe we should, t <laughs> yeah. maybe we should, what, what does she say? I love the way she said it. Maybe we should, she didn't say split off for a while. Maybe we should. I can't remember. Maybe yeah. we should end it for a while. That's the only thing you see where right. it's a sexual, uh, uh, yeah. gay versus straight. Well, he, but is that is that, anymore, is that apparently. the the only um, sexually loud exposition about? But that. It, but is that the pressures of this job and being surrounded by this intensity and they, or is it a sexual crisis? Or is that it he's an awakening? That is he it didn't an awakening? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's what I mean. Is like you don't yeah. get a mm -hmm. clear articulation. I hear yes, it seems to dampen his sex drive with his lady mm -hmm. friends. So that definitely indicates it may mm -hmm. well be. Uh, change. Do you have any Vaseline? 
<laughs> but but you know what I mean? Like there's something and I think it's played ambiguously and it's kept just distant enough but close enough. It's just the right proximity for us as okay. an audience to be able to see this character kind of when he takes on this other persona, how deeply does it impact him? And we're kind of – the film is about like trying to figure that out and the, and the answer is not clear. It's trying to figure that out. Okay, you say it's a small masterpiece and yeah. that's your first bit of evidence. Yeah. I will see that and I will raise you Ooh. with the confusion about who the goddamn killer is. Oh, yes. Is. Oh, yeah. Ambiguity there. Ambiguity yeah. there big yeah. time. Well, so we see who we believe to be the killer kill the first victim after Scanlon. Scanlon? Uh, yeah. Pacino, Pacino takes that, the assignment. That's, that's the Scheider character. And now uh, this is Burns. <laughs> Burns. Yeah. More ambiguity. <laughs> Burns. Thank you. We see the first murder yeah. happen yeah. Uh, after the, the case has begun in earnest with him going undercover. Who is like a prototype of like that era of Lou Reed. I mean, it's like I, I could have been Lou yeah, Reed. Yeah, that's true. Totally. Dark, the, dark haired the, the, guy. The glasses, yeah. the leather jacket. Kind of medium height. Yeah. I mean, and you, you, like you see like a Lou very Reed. loose group of men. It seems like yeah. you want to get laid, you're going to get laid tonight. You know Sisters what I mean? of Mercy kind of got their ideas from yeah. And so <laughs> a, a, a quick cruise, as they call it, yeah. a quick pickup. Cruising. Let's go to the hotel across the street. It's probably 20 bucks, whatever it is. And then you go, uh, we're going to have some sex, and I'm going to tie you up after I pull a knife out and then violently murder the dude. I mean, to like yeah. horror film yeah. Yeah. quality yeah. caliber murdering here. Yeah. So you think you know who the killer is because you clearly see his face. And mm -hmm. then you see, you know who the victim is. You've seen his face. Mm -hmm. But then we see more murders. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you caught it, the victim from the first murder is the murderer. That's what I thought. Yeah. In the, yeah. The, the, okay. And the murderer yeah. is the victim. And the murderer yeah. is the victim. <laughs> that's trip. And to me, that's my bit of evidence yeah. that this film, if I had told you, if we had watched this film together, I didn't tell you who directed it. You'd never seen it before. And I told you after the fact that Brian De Palma directed it. Would, would you believe me? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's so much De Palma yeah. in here. There was yeah. so much cool late 70s stuff in this movie. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, I really thought that the exposure, if you will, you want to call it that, an exposure, a, an expose of mm -hmm. this specific S&M leather bar sure. scene was fascinating to see because yeah. you can see that it's a snapshot of mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you, David. I loved this movie. I was so happy. I can't, I'm not, in the sense that I've been trying to figure out which one do I like more, Cruising or Sorcerer. I mean, I get, I, I flip a coin. I get Ooh, the problem. Yeah, that, I, I get the, I get many of the problems people have with it. And maybe, and I'm hearing Harold, maybe he has some of these problems. I, I got a couple hangups. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Harold, the floor Let, let's look. Uh, what hanky color does yeah, he have hanging out of his oh, room? I'm talking about the hankies in just a no, second. No, but, um, he, he's just a, a, a spectator. He doesn't get involved. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the wrong. I just like to watch. I like to take that shit off. Don't, don't have that hanging out of your pocket. <laughs> no, I, I think I think the only flaw with this movie that I have with it is mm -hmm. there's a lot of carrots and they don't really lead to you know. Th there's okay. a lot of drop narratives that happen. A lot of like, red herrings. Yeah, that that part I felt was kind of weak writing a little bit. Can you just remember one? So I, so I know you can. so basically like the Simone the the, the cops who get the blowjobs from the uh, <laughs> yeah from the transgender hookers right yeah. That whole storyline doesn't really ever get settled. So, again, he's also... Though you do see the cop show up in the club. Yeah, he's there. Yeah. But then he's also at the murder scene at the end. Yeah. And, like, yeah. he goes, what's your name? Paul, uh, Paul Sugan's character asking him what his name is. And is he a suspect? Is he the murderer? 
Yeah. You know? See, so, I thought, well, and I what, thought it was perfectly done to capture hypocrisy and oh yeah, no, that, that part uh, I get. That part I get. Um, homophobia. I mean, because yeah. there's like uh, there. What what do you call that when uh, they're certainly closeted? So so they wrangle up some, as you say, transgender uh, prostitutes. Yeah. And hassle them by forcing them to perform, perform oral, oral sex, sex yeah. on them yeah. while they're making fun of gays. Yeah. You know, and it's that rage-based mm-hmm. homosexuality mm-hmm. that um, many well, people... Well, it's just re- repressed, <laughs> repressed homosexuality, late homosexuality. Right, but, th- but it, it, yes. It, yes. it comes out in anger toward brutality toward... So, then, so that could be the motive for the circular, too. A lot of religious yeah. type folks. Well, and, and we definitely see that playing out, right? Like, one yeah. of the potential killers, one, yeah. who we actually do see kill, but also, like, yeah. is clearly struggling with this father uh, son relationship where he's you know yeah. sort of you know been rejected for his identity and then is like lashing out at others for that identity i understand why this film was as problematic as it was oh, I do too. in its I do moment too, definitely. i totally get it like we we weren't in- well you think maybe it was the fisting scene in the bar maybe it was problematic <laughs> <laughs> i no. intended on, i intended on bringing that up if you did it yeah. <laughs> but no no yeah. but you hear what i'm saying like okay i understand how in this moment and maybe even now it's not a film that can be widely embraced but I think it wasn't trying to be a comment so much on the gay community as it was a comment on identity and and a commentary on um again motivations and what is it that draws people to do the things that they do and like it's not so much what who this person is it's the way that society views them it's the way that they've been put into this position because of what it is they're drawn to do and that I just find endlessly fascinating like I can watch Endless amounts of films where it's boy meets girl, uh, they have disagreement, they have to figure out way through disagreement, they come together at the end, hooray, we're all happy. Like, I get it. And I'm good for a romantic comedy from time to time. How much do you like it when they set that same story that we've seen a dozen, a thousand different times in Korea? (laughs) <laughs> I'm saying like yeah. now you're going to show me at least some things I've never seen. You know why I like the movie Chocolat so much? The close-up pictures of making chocolate. Yeah, it's just fun to watch. Yeah. I've never made chocolate confectionery. Yeah. So if you're going to show me an interesting way to do that, I like seeing things I don't know. Yeah. I love every single gay bar scene in this movie. Yeah, yeah. including the him going to ask the handkerchief salesman what yeah. the handkerchiefs mean which was powers booth it was powers yeah. booth. awesome little cameo tons of little yeah. like uh, early um ed o'neill ed yes. and what's his name which um, which he was just a starting out young actor yeah. like yeah. and i forget yeah. the 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 neighbor's uh, lover is um God, what's that guy's name? Yeah, he he's played, yeah. He, he played like I'll the, the dead father in Dexter or whatever. Yeah. I'll look it up. Yeah, um, but I like yeah. the idea that in '79, or rather, we are seeing a snapshot of what these leather bars were, yeah. what they were probably up to in 1979, including a dude suspended from the air, yeah. uh, spread eagle. <clears throat> well, and the reality getting is, fisted. as as much as that scene for like, spectacle for, yeah. for those who are engaging in in such a scene consensually, like you know, more power to you, yeah, right? Exactly, and yet. We, you have to recognize, and I would say the same thing is the case with, uh, you know, uh, subcultures like heavy metal and stuff. There's like this interest in imagery that, in, that has violence is sort of in it and, and that, you know, is weaponry and this kind of like, you know, start that does have this kind of dangerous element to it. And part of that is yeah. it's an erotic danger, but, how much do you have to go to tip over the line? And, you know, I mean, most people stay on the other side of the line. Most people who are in the S&M community will 
abide by those safety principles that keeps everybody kind of safe and, you know, doing the things they want. Um, and the same goes with heavy metal, but there are the cases of, you know, like the guy in Cannibal Corpse who did have like human yeah. remains all throughout his house and, and was like sure. legitimately mentally ill yeah. and having these, like, these are communities that as much as we can say, like what they do is totally acceptable and should a consenting adult should be able to do this, that if you are somebody who has these kind of tendencies, it's also a place you can hide out and maybe, sure. and maybe kind of find your way through it because what you're drawn to is something that they're drawn to as well, even though they're doing it for a different purpose. Yeah. The actor you were trying to place was Jay Avacone. That guy. Yeah. I mean, and and I you look think, him up. He's in everything. Yeah. And I think also, you know, when you look at Friedkin's, you know, beginning, he started as a documentary filmmaker. This to me is almost like a documentary. He's documenting this scene, this, this part of, of culture that was like a mm -hmm. subculture. He's documenting it and he's yeah. using real people. Mm -hmm. And if you do research on the movie, apparently he had a relationship with a, um, a mafia, I don't know, some, someone in the mafia that helped him with the French connection as far as like some of his, um, I guess ideas and some, okay. to give him some realty. And they were discussing in this, this mob guys, they owned a lot of the gay bars in New York city. Uh huh. And one famously called the mind, mind shaft. Okay. And uh, he had mentioned that he had asked him, hey, can I film? He's like, no, you can't film there. He's like, don't discuss my business at home. Because he was at his house. Yeah. He's like, don't ever discuss my business in my house. <laughs> like, basically threatened him. <laughs> like a mafia guy does. So then I guess freaking basically took over a couple of famous bars and actually recreated the mind chef inside those bars. Yeah. And a lot of the mind chef regulars were actually in the film. Right, So right. it's like real people. They're not just actors. They're real yeah. participants, you know. And, yeah. And, What's interesting to you about that area, I used to live in New York City, and Meatpacking District now is like Disneyland. <laughs> I was, was going to say, like most of Manhattan, it's like yeah, incredibly. It's, it's completely. Yeah. This, this, and that happened when I was living there because I, I, moved, I moved to the city in 99, 2001, I'm sorry. In the late 90s, it was still at nighttime would be kind of a ghost town. Yeah. And it was mostly like transgender prostitutes out there and just hustlers, you know, yeah. selling themselves, whatever, and drugs and all that. And then slowly it started to gentrify and now oh, yeah. it's a great you know yeah we bustling neighborhood with restaurants there, and hotels and all kinds of stuff recently so. there and i walked through it by myself early in the morning we were leaving to get to the south entrance of the high line mm -hmm. yeah of course yeah it's so. fantastic hey guys we will discuss failure soon if we don't discuss al pacino's dance <laughs> it must be discussed the dance or how about the scene yeah yeah his, his, uh, what, what, what are those? Like, I don't know what the term <laughs> is for the like. Weights be, filled with like sand the head, or something. Behind the head. Yeah. Uh, Let me just get this straight, David. You I don't know a specific scene. weightlifting move. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that scene. That was laughing so there is hard. A part, there is a time you can see Al Pacino when he gets to the gay clubs. The first oh, that dancing scene that he is, is he's uncomfortable. He doesn't exactly know how to fit in. He goes to the handkerchief salesman to find out what the hankies hanging out the pockets mean. He's and then as he gets more into it, and then as he after he breaks up with his girlfriend, I get the impression that he's I'm going to more fully commit mm -hmm. to what it's going to require uh -huh. to get this serial killer to pick me up. And he goes, uh, he, a guy asks him to go dance. And what do they have, like nitrous oxide or something? Uh, I, I think they're, they're huffing ether or something. Oh, or, it's soaked or, or on a, yeah. a bandana. So yeah. that, that whole thing is like to... Relaxation of the sphincter. Okay. Well, it also re <laughs> relaxes his ability yeah. to do a. 
I mean, I'm putting it up there with Nicolas Cage in. It's pretty good. In, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, the movie we did, uh, Drive the, Angry. No, the Herzog movie when he dances. Oh, Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, Port of I mean, yeah, yeah. they're right up there for first yeah, place of best good. freaky ass dance scene ever. It, it is. <laughs> it is worth the price of admission of the film. Yeah, Al Pacino saying, "I'm going to take a dance in a gay club." To eleven, you know, yeah. it's so fun to yeah. watch. Yeah, almost up there. One with of the uh, only fun things about his performance. I don't think this was a particularly strong Pacino. Performance. I, I agree with you one hundred percent. I don't know. I, I, he is a good actor and he does the job. He but does, but it, it, it's, not it's not his best. Transcendent in the way yeah. of Godfather Two. You know? I I love it. Um, and and I'll say why. I don't think it's a performance he's as much in control of as Friedkin is. I think that. Hmm. I think Friedkin. And they had a lot of friction on. The I set, think Friedkin so. yes. got out of him what he wanted, which was that kind of uncertainty and that kind of strange. Like you know, Pacino has has uh, publicly complained that mm-hmm. Friedkin would not give him, give him directions. Yeah, he wouldn't give it. Like he would ask him, "Well, so what is my character really doing here?" And Friedkin would deny that for him. So him struggling in the film is kind of. Perfect. Purposeful. I mean, in the sense that, By the director. look, this is Burns, this cop, thrust into this situation where it's like, this could make my career, <clears throat> or maybe this is a new identity for me, or maybe, he's or maybe I'm actually the killer, or maybe uh-huh. these other people are, you know, all of that ambiguity that we've been talking about, I feel like is beating like the absolute heart of this character. And the fact that he can't commit to a single way of kind of presenting himself yeah. throughout the film and the way that it works perfectly for me. So, like, I hear what you're saying. It doesn't feel like a performance that was dialed in by Pacino and, like, he inhabited the character but in this way that he owned it. Perfectly. But the fact yeah. that this is a story about a character who is struggling in from moment one almost with his identity and who he is in this whole thing, it makes perfect sense to me that I'm seeing this character who's kind of out of control of his own performance. You bring up a good point. There is enough ambiguity there to believe that Pacino himself committed two of the murders, one or two of the murders. I love that we don't know aspect of it. Then cut to they they believe they've solved the case or they believe that they solved the case enough to close the case. He goes back to his girlfriend who walks in after he's come into the apartment and he's sitting in the bathroom shaving. Hold on, you're missing over an important part of the movie. Oh, please, Harold, please. (laughs) The the frigging black guy with the jockstrap that beats the that that is one of those that is one that of those like classic. Well, that's the best part of the movie. Set it up a little bit better. It's in a police and yes. interrogation. So, so, yeah. So 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 Pacino zeroes in on this one suspect <laughs> that he he lures to his room. He entices this guy, and he looks like the the killer, right? He, yeah. I think it's him. And the killer uses a certain type of knife. It's from a steakhouse, right? So detectives go to the steakhouse. They order steak, and they see the weapon. It says this guy must be the, our guy. Yeah. He works at the steakhouse, so. Pacino then lures him to his room. Yeah. And there's, you know, talk or whatever. And the cops are outside and but, they're but then listening. The, they're not getting the yeah, they're not, they're audio anymore. Uh, no, hold on real quick. I love that scene. I love any scene where we're trapped by the technology of the past. Oh, yeah. 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 It's yeah. like uh, there's no cell phones. Yeah. There's no Bluetooth. Yeah. It's just uh, he must be wearing a wire yeah. and there's a shitty transmitter. Yeah. And they're yeah. turning that knob. Yeah, they're trying, they're you hear, on top of the car and all that. You know, yeah. and it's, I love that stuff. So then all of a sudden, like. 30 cops show up at this like little, you know, flop house and they bust in the door and then Pacino's there with the guy and then Pacino's they, hogtied nude. Hogtied nude, yep. Exactly. That's the killer's MO, right? Right. Yeah. And uh then it cuts to like them being interrogated 
and the ki- the, the suspect doesn't know that Pacino is is a cop. They're right. trying to cover that up. So they're being interrogated. And they're being like beaten and like treated like shit. Well, they're, I mean, beaten once the well, guy you're talking the about. The first shows. guy. first <laughs> yeah. guy shows up. So, so then. For reasons even, unknown. I don't even understand. Like, Pacino's like sitting there and he's like, I don't know why I'm here, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't do anything. And then all of a sudden, this this guy. Just <laughs> just wearing a jockstrap. Wearing a jockstrap. Right? Walks a in and just slaps the black shit out of With a jockstrap, a mesh shirt, and a cowboy yeah, hat. Yeah, slaps the shit out of Pacino. <laughs> and then leaves. <laughs> then leaves. Like, the, who the, are you? What, the, what kind the of police precinct have I had? What? Freakin uh, said in an interview that that is true. Really? Yeah, and the reason why the police would do that is because if a suspect said a black <laughs> man wearing a jockstrap and a cowboy what? hat slapped oh, me. Oh, that's brilliant. No okay. one would believe him. Really? Or her. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so then, of course, he separates, and then the black guy comes in and beats shit out of the, the suspect, and then that causes him to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not cool with this. I'm not cool with you beating these guys up and hurting them. I didn't them. sign up for this for you to gay yeah, bash. Yeah, to gay yeah. bash. Yeah. yeah, so I thought that's also a very positive I message. I so. freaking put it in there, I think, on purpose. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. To say, hey, I'm not here to, you know. Denigrate. Exactly. Yeah. I'm here it's, to, yeah. to I'm show here to what murder. Sympathize. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, so Pacino, they cracked the case. And now Pacino's back at his girlfriend's, shaving. She walks in, and he says interesting words. I'm back, he says. Yeah. He says, I need to tell you everything. And then he looks at the audience with like a, yeah. you don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Cut to black. No, after, no, I'm sorry. She's in the room trying on his bondage outfit. Yes, like his, well, his, 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 his leather jacket, his, his leather yeah. hat. Yeah. It's... It's De Palma, man. I mean, this is a De Palma film in many, many ways. A De Palma, a character underrepresented on this show, by the way. Yeah. I hope we should do something well, about it, that soon. But I, but oh, I, it'll be good. Maybe even before De Palma was De Palma in the way you're talking about. I mean, this the, this film, I, I agree, has a lot of overlap with a De Palma sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the confusion of the killer—that's the thing. Absolutely. And, and even when the movie's over, there are, nothing is tied up. No, we don't even we don't know if we've caught the killer. We don't know. Well, who if anything, the we is. know. We, I mean, at multiple least based killers, on the visual knows? evidence well, we have, the, there have been multiple. They killers. show the first guy who did the killing walking into like a building, right? So yeah, he's still out there. Yeah. But then again, it, the, the guy that who's the uh, student, the, the graduate student at Columbia, whatever, yeah. he gets arrested, right? They yeah. got his thumbprint on the yeah. coin in the whatever peep show. Peep show, right? You, you know, made me do he's this. schizophrenic, right? He's seeing his dead father or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. An, that's another like red herring. Like, well, where is this going to lead to? Right. Uh, and, that, and that ultimately bothered you that there was no. So, a, so a little well? bit because yeah. they leave it a little like too it. open. I, I don't mind some, but when it's like every angle of the movie is not giving me any kind of final direction, I'm a little bit. I feel like that's eh, kind of shitty writing. Mm. Well, a I, little bit. I, mean, I, 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 I like think the movie. But I, I like think the it's movie, being but. done. So I hear where you're coming from, but I don't think. We can dismiss it as shitty writing because it's being done so intentionally. Well, like, I, I think, he I think cle- he's antagonizing the audience. I think he is, but sure. I think it's because I I think he's antagonizing us for a reason. I think mm. he's antagonizing us because no, most of our lives doesn't boil down to us fingering the right suspect in whatever case. Fingering, we're, we're interesting from. word to use in that context. <laughs> Fisting the right suspect. I'm sorry, Harold. But, anyway, yeah. but you, you understand what I'm saying. It's like most of the time, it A, it isn't a single villain. It isn't a yeah. single negative yeah. force in our lives. And B, we almost never find what that culprit yeah. is. Yeah. And so to me, again, these are not 
satisfying films in a certain yeah. sense. Like they're never going to give you the closure that you want because it's going to leave you feeling like, okay, yeah, I guess they accomplished that, but, but really did they? And to them, like this is a closed case for the police department. Yeah. One would assume like based on but Burns <coughs> is moving on to this new position. You know, he, he's gotten that he, he's, Called detective, detective yeah. by by the captain after, so he's gotten his promotion that he was hoping for. He's back with his lady friend. I mean, on the surface, maybe we should all feel like, hey, th- this is a great ending. Like the cop yeah. gets his gets the killer, and the way. but leaving these kind of open pieces to it and giving us all this uncertainty, I think, just shines a light on so few things that we think are solved or whatever. Like, do we actually understand the true complexity of? Like, we may put it all under that. And say, oh, that was his fault. We got him, put him behind bars, the end. Yeah. But in most cases, like, there's more complexity to it than that. And I think another thing with the movie that, that kind of threw me off a little bit. I know it's a movie. It's it's a, it's a written, right? But if you know anything about the NYPD NYPD and the gay the gay community is that they didn't really give two shits about them. Yeah. They, they don't, there was murders been happening in the gay community in New York City for decades. Yeah. Right? And when it happens... The police don't want to get involved. Right. They don't want to solve these murders. They don't mm-hmm. care. Um, there's there's actually like um, people who get together to represent gay people who have been bashed and killed because the cops don't do anything. Right. And I just I was telling Joe I'd watched a documentary uh, recently called The Last Call Killer on on Max and they kind of go over a story similar storyline that happened in the 90s. Yeah. When there was a serial killer who was targeting gay men. Yeah. And they dropped the ball and they didn't really ever want to really. Yeah do anything because they are a lot of homophobes it's, yeah it's part of the you know well, part they, of the, the culture they see themselves as outside i mean it's yeah. like what they do with the black community too yeah, like okay thing. like hey it's black on black violence we yeah. don't need to police that like yeah. that they, they can do their own thing and same with the gay community same with yeah. any kind of minority group that oneself can yeah. position outside of and say oh well that's not my people that's mm-hmm. not who and and yeah so i i think it's you know, kind of commentary on that as well. Then, Although it, the, I hear what you're saying. It's misleading in how much interest they take in yeah, this case. Yeah, because the cops would not be giving two shits about some gay yeah. guys dying and showing up in a river somewhere. Other than they, the fact they wouldn't the, care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't yeah. care. They, they would look for something else to put their, their gaze right. upon. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. At the very I, I least, like this movie more, I think. I'll give you my final judgment in After Hours. Okay. Cruising versus Sorcerer, which did I enjoy more? Yeah. I would be torn. I wasn't thinking about comparisons so I know. much you know because me. I I, li- I like both of the films quite a bit. And, but I do think over time, my appreciation for cruising has grown more than Sorcerer. And I think in part because I did when I saw cruising the first time already know this is a problematic film. This is yeah. big. And I do. I see that. And, and I, I hope I, you know, like I think there's legitimacy to those people who say this film was a terrible thing for the gay community at the time. Now, luckily for them, it didn't really take off in the mainstream. Yeah. It wasn't something that was really became most people's vision of what the gay community was. But I absolutely understand that even if, you know, if this had become a breakout hit sure. and this is how most people thought of the gay community existing and this be was problematic. Sort of, it would yeah. be a big problem. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I hinted earlier about 70s being the best decade for film and all that. Correct. And that's, you know, an opinion. But I think this movie straddles, you know, it, it's sure came out in 80, was filmed in the 70s. Right. And I think there's a couple times where I'm like, okay, this has an 80s feel to it. Yeah. yeah. I felt some of these are a little, a touch of like cheesiness that didn't exist to me in 70s film. 
Yeah. A couple, like the scene, especially the scene where he's like lifting the weights in front of the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> that felt like, you know, like an 80s montage. Yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah. like grunting. Like, I just, you know what I mean? That that kind of made me, made me giggle. Whereas watching Sorcerer, I never giggled once. I was just like in this intense. No, no. That, that, that you know, one, yeah. thriller. And this is a thriller, right? This is a mystery movie. And, and yeah. But no, I ultimately, the movie was great. It's fantastic. Uh, direction is course and just just uh i love seeing in new york city anytime in an older age always yeah. fascinates me just seeing the city at, at that time is yeah. always great to especially see as a former resident yeah, yeah. it's awesome that's definitely it's great okay so i picked this beer up all because of the branding beautiful s'more cartoon of the you know gimme s'more and a beautiful fun font is why i picked this up david this is our first time to be at nebraska brewing company Wow. We've been to Nebraska a couple times, but it's all been, it's all been White Elm Brewing. Yeah. So yeah. our first time to Nebraska, it's, uh, I told you, I said up front, this is on the nose. This is a little cloying to me. And as I've got one sip mm -hmm. left in my glass and got to stick my nose deep into it to drink it, it's still very, fra mm -hmm. very fragrant. But that fragrance doesn't translate to an overall sweet taste for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd, I don't think this was like hit my palate with a hammer sweet that and the nose made me scared about that what i am getting in the flavor though i don't know if it's fully paying off in the way that i want it to um it, it is definitely a malty concoction here yeah i i got some of that fake marshmallowy you know the, the, like synthetic sweetness there out of, out of it that i think but it was pretty mild so i i, I give them kudos for that not amping that up too much but I'm not really getting the chocolate in there. I'm not really getting really a graham crackery thing. Mm -hmm. So to call this s'mores, I feel like is a stretch. I, I, I'm getting s'more on the flavor. Okay. Um, but I am getting a lot of malt, okay. which, you know, it's a brown ale. You're going to have yeah. a, a little bit of that. Um, one and done for me on this one, but glad I had it. And I'm certainly glad to bring Nebraska into the fold, Nebraska Brewing Company yeah, into for, the for fold. Me, for me, it was, it was kind of a... I think it would have been better service putting it in a stout or something else. A little more mm -hmm. roast would give you the, I'd like to taste the, that. the chocolate notes you talked about. Yeah. Kind of I feel like most s'mores <clears throat> beers that I've had have yeah. had a stout base. And, and I, I, I do I do get the uh, the gram in the, the body okay. a little bit. I, I get I can taste like the the gram in the malt bill, I guess. Okay. But definitely for me what turns me off is the synthetic kind of marshmallow even Yeah. Yeah, that's their thing. Like it's just a little too overpowering for me. Yeah. But it's enjoyable but one and done for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a nice little yeah. fun gimmick beer and I'm glad we yeah. had it. Well, and I can definitely see how somebody who is more of a fan of brown ales and maybe yeah. more of a fan of marshmallow flavor sure. would really get a kick out of this and and would would love having this on hand. But yeah, for me this is a this is a interesting option, but I've had better from Nebraska. Let's let's go search those out then. Yeah. Let's right. go cruise for some of those beers. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. What hanky color do you need for a brown ale? I don't need Stay tuned to the end of the answer. <laughs> well, please do stay tuned because the best thing about beer in a movie huh? is that the conversation does not end here. Mm. You can find us on all sorts of social media platforms where they're on Facebook, where they're on Instagram. We have some kind of presence on X, maybe. Uh, you know, you can go to our website, certainly, beerinamoviepodcast.com for some nice curated lists of our episodes, as well as the link to our Tee Public store, where you can find various forms of merch. Uh, you can also join our chat on Discord. Please just ask us for it if you have any trouble finding us under Beer in a Movie. The conversation continues there. 
And we've also mentioned that we're going to extend this very conversation that we've been having on this episode ourselves in our Patreon subscriber only after hours bonus episode. You get to that by going to patreon.com slash beer and a movie podcast and signing up. And we hope you're listening on one of your favorite podcasting platforms. And before you leave, you might just stay there long enough to rate us and leave a review. We hope you'll make it five starts, five stars, so that the algorithm can do what it do, David. Mangle words the way that I do, and <laughs> put us out there for an option as an option for more listeners. You've just experienced another. Friedkin packed episode. Well, really, our first Friedkin packed episode of Beer in a Movie. Until next time. The blue hanky means blowjob. You have one hanging out of your left pants pocket means you want a blowjob. A blue in the right rear pocket is you give them. The green hanky in your rear pocket means you're a hustler. The green hanky in your left rear means you're looking to buy. The yellow hanky in your left rear pocket means you give gold and shower. The yellow in the right rear means you receive gold. The red hanky in your left rear pocket means you give S&M. The red in the right... Okay. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> Hooah! <laughs>